Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for a complete disclosure. In today's episode, I'm joined by Carlos Betancourt, founding principal at BK Coin Capital. Carlos, it's great to have you on. Hey, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. So let's dive right into it. What what did you do before you uh, entered the crypto space? Oh man, that's going back brings a lot of memories. But I started my career as an equity analyst at KCM Asset Management, a long short hedge fund. And as you could imagine, that was my first job out of college. So I was doing all the busy work, a lot of daily portfolio models, a lot of monthly performance reports. And my focus was around the Japanese, UK, and US markets. After that, I moved to New York and started a junior trader position at Tremont Metals Corp, a small boutique shop. And soon after, I became a commodities trader and uh, started trading ferro alloys, metals, and liquefied petroleum gas. Uh, a little bit after that, I joined the team at AMCI Group uh, as the commodities manager, and I was advising the managing director at the time and facilitating global marketing, logistics, and long-short sales strategies. Um, over that period of time, I developed a ton of new sales opportunities in Latin America and North America uh, for physical commodity markets, and uh, I was able to meet a lot of great people different trading firms, steel mills, foundries. And uh, that led me to leave and start my own company, Yorkville Commodities. And uh, I started thinking that it was the perfect time. But, you know, as soon as that happened, the commodity super cycle hit me right in the face. So I started thinking of ways where I could capitalize on what was going on. And because of all of the relationships I had in my previous roles, I was able to start brokering some small coal deals in Colombia and a few natural gas liquid deals uh, in Chile. And soon enough, I was able to pair myself up with a New York City broker dealer and started raising capital for small and medium-sized mining and trading companies across Latin America. And uh, that was uh, right before <laughs> crypto slapped me in the face and uh, I took the plunge uh, yeah. right around. <laughs> so, yeah, my, 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 you're leading right into it, right? You know, which is my next question is, how did you go from, you know, brokering, you know, ferro alloys and coal to falling down the crypto rabbit hole? What was your first experience with, with crypto and, um, you know, you know, how, how did that eventually lead to you, you know, starting BK Coin Capital? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story. But back in 2014, I was commuting from the Upper East Side down to FIDI every day. And back in the day, there was only one soul center in New York City where you could go and literally buy Bitcoin with cash. 
and it was the Bitcoin Center. It was on 40 Broad Street. And every day I would pass by it. And I kept thinking, you know, what is going on with this? What What is this Bitcoin thing? And I kind of took a plunge and went inside and immediately fell in love with the atmosphere and the community. And they had a, a dashboard that mimicked a traditional uh, exchange. And so I started doing some more digging up. I was still very much confused as to what was going on and what this digital money was. So I called my little cousin because he's a, a techie and had him explain to me exactly what was going on with Bitcoin. And he explained to me that it was a form of digital cash and that he was actually using it in gaming and to pay certain things online. Um, that prompted me to start reading uh, the white paper and delete this. That prompted me to start reading the Satoshi white paper and really get involved in the crypto space. Um, uh, the period between 2015 and 2017, I was doing a lot of day trading and saw a ton of opportunities uh, across different exchanges. And that was right around the time where I had a conversation with my partner, Kevin Kang, and we decided to, to take a leap of faith and, and formalize um, our trading activities. And our formal inception date was in 2018. And so back in 2015 to 2017, when you were day trading uh, and, and trading between different exchanges, what were the, the, what were the trading platforms uh, that you were using? And, and what was the experience like versus you know, trading today across you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the platforms that exist right now? Yeah, back in the day, there was only a few. And I believe my first account was actually a Kraken account. But then one of the things that was super interesting was between the time that we started day trading um, to the time where we decided, hey, let's do something. We think that there's a, a neat opportunity to participate and be an early in, uh, participant in the space. Um, we saw an amazing amount of money being put into the infrastructure of these exchanges. And that was one of the telltale signs that this was going to be big time. And the first couple trades that we were focusing on primarily were inter-exchange arbitrage. And I'm sure we're going to dive into some of those uh, in a little bit further uh, in our discussion. But uh, that was the, the first trades that we, we deem were the easy pickings uh, at the time. And at that time, were you just trading Bitcoin or were you trading other altcoins? Mostly Bitcoin at the time. And then so what was the impetus for, you know, formalizing, you know, the trading that you were doing and, and starting uh, BK Coin Capital? And then would love for you to kind of flow into, you know, what, what BK Coin Capital is, you know, what types of trading that you do and, and what makes it different from other funds in the space? Sure. For, for me, it was really comparing precious metals to Bitcoin. Uh, my background was in commodities, and there are so many similarities from the very start. Limited supply, store of value, and I mean, you see it now, right? About 90% of the 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be mined have already been mined. And so as, it, as the market continues to mature, it's going to be a demand and supply game. And that is very similar to commodities. And it happens sometimes in the middle of the year. If there's a drought and somebody 
cannot get water to a mine, for example. They have to shut down the mine, meaning there's continued demand, but a lack of supply. And that creates volatility, that creates opportunity, and that creates dislocations. And to me, Bitcoin was literally like thinking of mining trips that I took to Latin America, where I could see the amount of effort that goes into mining a single ounce of gold. Uh, But in this case, it was a computer mining Bitcoin, and it was much easier to transport than an ounce of gold. So that really caught my attention. And it was, that was, that was basically the, the first time that I really knew that I wanted to do something within the cryptocurrency space. And moving on to your question about what we do at BK, we basically specialize in finding mispriced arbitrage opportunities in the digital asset space. We run a market neutral systematic arbitrage fund as a, as a new and unfamiliar as this asset class seems, it also presents a ton of opportunities in terms of dislocations in the marketplace. Dislocation obviously creates value and we're value investors. Everyone on our team comes from traditional finance background covering all asset classes, including equities, fixed income, commodities, and forex trading from big bullets, bracket banks to hedge funds. We set out to exploit the inefficiencies in the new asset class to provide institutional investors exposure to digital assets with less volatility. Since our inception in 2018, we're up 87%, beating the S&P 500 by almost five times. I think one of the things that really makes us special as a hedge fund is our ability to adapt um, because we're such a small team. Right now, we're only a team of eight. We just welcomed a new intern, so we're a team of nine. Um, but our experience has been critical to our success. Um, as you've met a bunch of people in the space, you know that there has been a ton of big announcements and launches of crypto hedge funds, but we never had a flashy launch uh, like some other crypto hedge funds, especially the ones founded by, by techies. Um, but we started very small, focusing on building a strong foundation and focusing on sophisticated trading strategies and transparency. And I think by setting that focus uh, on institutional side and institutional investors, um, it basically provided us the ability to go a little bit further in terms of registering as an investment advisor with the SEC and FINRA, and also putting together top service providers to work with, uh, like our fund administrator, Sudrania and the likes of BitGo, Gemini, and Copper, uh, who serve us as custodians. So you mentioned that you didn't have a a big and and fancy and flashy launch. So when you guys first launched, was it all proprietary? Was it just you you and your partner trading your own capital? And, you know, how did you guys go about fundraising? And and how has that kind of changed over the last uh, few years? And are there different types of of you know institutions that are, are now you know that you're now talking to that you know weren't interested back in the day or has it been pretty consistent? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think so much has changed over time. At the very beginning, Kevin and I were strictly trading our own capital. It was really a prop trading shop, and over time, we really thought that eventually the space was going to need a market neutral strategy, which very few people were even talking about. Because of our background, we decided to go for it and really tailor 
to institutional investors. And that proved to be the right move because over time, as the market matured, we were able to capitalize on landing clients that two or three years ago were not even considering crypto as, a, as an asset class. And so looking back over time, we've changed in the way that we traded from not only just doing only discretionary trading, but also spending a significant amount of time and resources creating arbitrage algorithms. Um, our first one was the one that we were initially doing semi-automatically, which was an inter-exchange ARB. Um, we then turned our focus to a pair currency trade, which is also known as a triangular ARB, uh, very similar to uh, FX. And then now, in the last year or so, we started trading and our latest algorithm, which is a spot futures algorithm. And it's also known, uh, commonly known in the space as the basis trade, which is basically capturing the difference between spot and futures. We are already working on our fourth algorithm. So it's in our roadmap and we're looking uh, closer to the derivative space. And it'll probably have to do with some futures to futures spread. And we're very excited about that one as well. And so what is the what when when you go out and you go to a family office, for example, and you're looking to raise capital, right? You know, a lot of the the other funds that we've brought on are are, you know, discretionary or quantitative trading. But, you know, a lot of the pitch that they're making is that, hey, you need to be part of this, you know, this new asset class. You know, if you look at, you know, Bitcoin compared to gold, it's, you know, one twentieth of the size. But with you guys, you're focused mostly on, I mean, you guys are market neutral, right? You're, you're mostly arbitrage focused. So it's a much different pitch. Is, is the pitch basically, hey, this is, you know, an asset class that's kind of ripe for, you know, exploitation and that there's a, there's a tremendous amount of inefficiencies in the market. You know, when you're going out to a family office or even a crypto focused fund of funds, you know, what is the pitch? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I think our pitch has always started with a, a, an educational course because most of the family offices that we've met with and most of the funds of funds that are not necessarily a cryptocurrency funds of funds are not necessarily very well versed in the space. They don't really understand how mining works. They don't really understand the concept of a digital wallet. And so we actually spend a significant amount of time walking potential clients through what exactly digital assets are and how that can be a way to diversify their portfolio and increase their alpha. Over time, we've noticed that some of these same family offices and funds of funds have spent their own time doing research and come back to us several months later after tracking our newsletter and keeping up with us. And they say, hey, we're now ready to invest. Um, we would like to move forward. But it's a lengthy process. Um, our first family office that we were successful in landing took us about two years. and. So far, so good. They're very happy with us. Um, we're very happy with not just them, but all of our clients. And they're very savvy investors. That's one thing that, that always brings me back to the idea of people back in the day not wanting to participate in junk bond trading, for example, or um, something that's a little bit more risky, like sovereign debt in countries like Argentina. 
But in some occasions, those are the best trades. And those are the risks that some people are willing to take to maximize their returns. And so very similar to what we've experienced over time, when they can't find alpha in traditional asset classes, and they continuously see that crypto is, quote unquote, blowing up, uh, they come right back and, and they want to learn more. They ask for more resources and um, we're here to help them. And so I'm curious as to what the, the you know, when you, when you, you know, you mentioned it took two years to get your first family office and, and honestly, great on you guys for being persistent. And, you know, I mean, you've mentioned just how, you know, successful, you know, off air you've been to me, you know, more recently. So I'd love to kind of hear the, uh, you know, the initial hesitations, right? Why did it take so long? And are you hearing those same hesitations from, from, from family offices now? Like, is it just worries about the asset class worries about custody? Like what, what are the you know, what, what is kind of keeping people on the sidelines or what are initially kept people on the sidelines and, and, you know, kind of how has that changed over the last few years and, and are any of those things continuing to keep, uh, you know, institutions on the sidelines? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, you, ha- you hosted uh, Mr. Balani from Delta Exchange and a couple of weeks ago, I believe, on your podcast, and he had a couple of very interesting things to say. Uh, you go back to 2016, and there was only one real derivatives product out in the space. And right around that time, when we were thinking about launching our fund, there was a huge lack of regulatory framework. There were no fund administrators servicing crypto hedge funds. There were no banks servicing crypto players in general. Uh, a lack of custodians. There were maybe one or two, but some of the products and services that they were offering were not sufficient for active traders such as ourselves. So as an example, the bulk of the hedge funds that came up in the space in 2016 and 2017 were all long, short, discretionary trading or momentum-driven type strategies. And that is great, but you're not actively trading. So you can leave and deposit your capital back into a custodian and wait 24 to 48 hours before you deploy again. For folks like us, we're actively trading. We place over 100 trades every day, and we need to be able to access capital very quickly. Custodians today have done an amazing job at creating new products and services that allow you to touch your funds a lot quicker and deploy that capital a lot quicker. In addition to Back in the day, we didn't have as many OTC desks. We did not have a very robust borrow lend market. And now we are very close to seeing a full prime brokerage solution in the space. I think today crypto is still in infancy stage and we continue to expect significant growth. And one of the areas where we have seen a lot of growth and we're very happy is the FCMs. They've expressed solid feedback from from traditional institutions actively already participating in in CME and backed futures. And so, you know, you mentioned when you were first getting started that you were primarily only trading Bitcoin. So have you expanded on the list of tokens that you were trading? uh, and, And kind of how do you make that determination as to whether or not an asset is tradable? Yeah, um... We have expanded uh, what we trade. Um, The number one reason why we traded exclusively Bitcoin at the very beginning was liquidity. Um, One of the things that 
prohibits us from participating in some of the altcoins is the lack of liquidity. And as a fiduciary, we have to make sure that we can exit a trade um, because we need to safeguard our clients' capital. And so not having enough liquidity may be something that hinders the ability to trade a specific asset. Over time, we have added more tokens, but I would say 90% or more of our trading still revolves around Bitcoin and Ethereum. And you mentioned you know, that you guys are now trading spot futures. Is that, is that something that you can trade for altcoins or is the, the spot futures basis trades really just for Bitcoin and, and maybe a bit of ETH? I think the way that we're going with folks like FTX, uh, folks like Huobi, Binance pumping out new products every single day, I don't foresee having altcoins, perpetual swaps and futures uh, for very much longer. And I think there are certainly some that are already in existence. So my expectation that by sometime next year, um, the liquidity in those products are, is going to be significantly higher. And so you mentioned that you know you're 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 mostly uh, you know focused on market neutral strategies, right, and, and arbitrage based strategies. But are you making uh, you know maybe on your own, you know, on the side, any any long term investments in tokens? And um, you know, if 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 that's the case, you know, wondering how you you know think about doing due diligence on a token, and you know, even interacting with teams behind some of these protocols. Sure, I, I'm actually a huge fan of uh, of dabbling in in my own portfolio. I think uh, there's some projects that are, are incredible. To give you an idea of one that I really like, ENJ Engine Coin. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, well, I think- now NFTs are the biggest <laughs> thing, right? As of like sure. a day ago. So, so I, I'm a I'm not a big gamer, but I'm a big fan of gaming. I think that there's tremendous upside and potential. Um, I have a ton of friends that are gamers. The ability of being able to trade, uh, let's just say, some avatar or or some kind of uh, person that you've created in a game and sell it uh, to another user, to me, is fascinating. Last year uh, in Q4, I started paying attention to Engine because they, had, they made an announcement where they started uh, collaborating with Microsoft. And that was basically the writing on the wall for me. And the way that we look closely at research criteria is broken down into three different areas and going to right into fundamentals. But we look at things at a company level. We look at things at a coin or token level. And then we look at things from a valuation perspective as well. And so each area we're diving in very deeply. So for example, at a company level, I'll give you a few things that we always look at, you know, what are some of the services and technologies that this company provide? Um, have they been successful in implementing these services within the blockchain community? Is there a need for the services? Are things still under development? Who is running these companies? And to your point, yes, absolutely. In some cases, when we have a lot of interest in a particular coin, we go ahead and reach out directly to their team. Um, and then more Going back to our second level, which is a, a token level, we're looking at things, everything from the first date of an ICO, if they had one, to the current price, volume, market cap, weekly and monthly trends. Um, 
I even like to look at the Google Trends for each coin. Um, a simple Google search will tell you how many people are researching this this new coin. Uh, and then more from a valuation standpoint, we we tend to look at companies as early stage companies, particularly the altcoins. One big problem that that we have in the space, or, or maybe not a problem, but something that that eventually we will have that we do have in traditional markets is the ability to go to Yahoo Finance and pull up a balance sheet and pull up an income statement. That doesn't exist in crypto. Um, it definitely doesn't exist when it comes to an altcoin. But one thing that we can do is we can create probabilities and percentages of probabilities that allow us to perform free cash flow models or multiple stage free cash flow models, which are normally used in traditional finance for early stage companies and valuating them. So those are things that we really like looking at. And then ultimately, we're also looking at on-chain data. And I know that that's something that you love looking at. Um, so we use several service providers for that. Anything that has to do with wallet growth, uh, number of wallets, hash rates, uh, those are things that we really, really like to focus on. And we like to track that on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. And so something that you, uh, you, you mentioned stood out to me, which is the idea of, of you know, doing you know, valuation on tokens and looking at things like cash flow. So one thing that's, that's always been difficult for me to kind of wrap my head around is, what is the difference between when a token has a foundation, you know, a nonprofit foundation like the Ethereum Foundation, or when it has a for-profit company like, you know, EOS has Block One around it, right? And and XRP has Ripple, and and what kinds of differences there are there, and and when taking into account cash flow, like, does Ripple's cash flow have anything to do with the success of XRP? I'd love to kind of get your thoughts there. Oh, that's a great question. And th this is exactly what in some cases I, I struggle with in crypto, because we have somewhat of a little bit of lack of information. There are certain things that the blockchain allows us to do. That is great being able to track every single wallet, wallet growth, movement of uh, assets between exchanges and between wallets. But when you get to the bottom of it the, at a company level or at a foundation level, it's pretty opaque. And so this is when you kind of have to put your asset manager's hat and come up with ideas and come up with percentages, if you will, based on what you think each wallet growth is worth or each uh, user is worth and how they're monetizing what they're doing. And so that's when some of the on-chain data becomes really, really interesting to us. But ultimately, and as, as an asset manager, you're looking for a fair value, right? And um, whether you are dead on or you're wrong, that's what you're looking for. So you have to create assumptions. You have to play around with some of the variables and then come up with a fair value for that asset. And that's kind of how we approach it. But everybody has their own style. And I think one of the things that makes our team so special is that every single one of us comes from a different uh, professional career, if you will. Uh, my founding partner is an equity, former equities and fixed income portfolio manager. 
I come from a background primarily of commodities. We have several advisors that all concentrate on different areas. We have a micro cap expert on the team. We have two guys that run their own hedge funds. One is a long short equity hedge fund out of San Francisco. We had a former uh, PM of the largest Australian family office as part of our team. And being able to have access to them and being able to have team meetings where we discuss things gives us the ability to come up with certain valuations and really dive into the macro fundamentals and what we can expect for, for an asset to behave like uh, based on events, different catalysts, uh, new partnerships, monetary policy, et cetera. So I, I really would love to dive into that. But one other question before we go there, and I know we're going to hit on DeFi later. Um, you know, as, as we think through valuation, obviously there's no right or wrong answer to cryptocurrency valuation because there are no established fundamentals, right? You know, nobody has really agreed upon anything yet, but I'd love to kind of get your take on where, like when you're valuing a protocol versus an application, like if you're valuing Ethereum, how do you think about the growth of DeFi, for example, in relation to Ethereum? Like, do you, do you think that 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 helps Ethereum accrue value? Do you think that things like the growth growth of DeFi actually hurt Ethereum because of the impact on transactional costs and, and security risk? Like, what are your thoughts on, on valuations of, of protocols versus applications? Sure. I mean, when it comes to Ethereum, you know, I have a soft spot for Ethereum because I think that they have um, an army of engineers that are much smarter than I am uh, building incredible projects on that protocol and one of the things that i like to see is how many successful companies or new products and services are being built on top of it and that gives you an idea of okay are they headed the right way or are they not and to touch more on DeFi, i think with the amount of value locked currently in the DeFi space uh man you, you one could argue that that ethereum has a very bright future ahead of it and literally i would if you do something as simple as going to defipulse.com and scroll down the top 30 or 40 companies in the defi space are all built off on ethereum and the amount of ethereum locked continues to grow at a very very rapid pace so it's a combination. It's a combination of where they're headed, what they've been able to do, how many people are being able to build successful companies on top of Ethereum. But I think 2.0 could be something that, that we haven't seen since the early 90s or maybe 2000s when we had the internet boom. And so you also hit, you know, right right before this on different types of events and catalysts and drivers. So when you're thinking about, you know, uh, you know more of a, a trade in this space, right, versus a, a long-term investment, what are those catalysts? I mean, are, are, are you guys able to, like, are, are you able to actually make discretionary investments as well or discretionary trades, or is it mostly just ARB? And if you are, you know, what types of catalysts are you actually looking for when making, you know, trades? Sure. Um, 90% of our strategy is fully systematic arbitrage and 
10% of our strategy is discretionary trading. And for that 10%, absolutely, we're looking at different catalysts that generally have to do with, you know, what's happening in the political realm uh, as of late. And I think behind that, we're looking at things like sentiment data, which you have service providers like the Thai that are doing an amazing job at being able to collect and scrape the internet for data uh, and, and creating sentiment signals. Um, but also, you know, continuing to, to look at on-chain metrics as well are some of the things that we like seeing. But the biggest catalyst, you know, are things that could really make a change in markets. So we like to track the correlation between Bitcoin and the traditional markets gold and every time we follow that it allows us to almost paint a picture as to what is crypto doing and so when you look at over the last year or so there are periods where crypto is literally following what equity markets are doing and by following the correlation it gives it paints a picture when there may or may not be opportunities so so why do you think that's happening? And I know that's a difficult question. I guess the 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 billion dollar question is why is crypto following equity markets? Because for the longest time crypto was just a completely uncorrelated asset and then all of a sudden there was always all this talk about, you know, Bitcoin as a risk off asset like gold, but it really has been following equity markets recently and I, I'm I'm really curious to kind of get your opinion on that. Well, I'll start with a very simple answer. Equity markets are significantly bigger than crypto. I would consider crypto to be a very, very small asset class. I mean, crypto is like, what, one-tenth of Apple? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> One company. So, And I think you look at a day like today, right? Um, it was a sea of red in traditional markets. And it was also somewhat a sea of red in crypto. And we were having a discussion internally uh, about, hey, maybe crypto isn't really a safe haven asset like a lot of people paint it to be. Look at what, hap what happened today again. You know, equities are down, crypto's down. And what I said to that was, well, do you take a peek at precious metals? Because gold is the standard for safe haven. Gold got crushed But today, right? they got crushed too. Yeah. And when you're looking at what some of the decision makers at the Fed level and at the government's level across the world and central banks are doing and the amount of quantitative easing and there's just a, almost like an aura of something else is happening here. I think right now we're, we're in a place where everything could come down but we're also at a place where, hey, if we get a second stimulus in the U.S., what happened when the first stimulus happened? Crypto had a really nice run. So I think if we continue printing at this rate, not just here in the States, but other central banks, I think that we will see gold and Bitcoin keep going up and people looking at it as a, as a way to hedge. And and really, as a safe haven asset, which you know many would argue that that's not the case, but 
Um, when you look at the correlation over the last 12 months between gold and, and Bitcoin, it's, it's sitting at right around 0.8, uh, which is the highest level ever. So they're moving pretty close to each other. And I expect, I expect to have to continue having even bigger highs on both, especially if we continue printing at this rate. Yeah, and I think something you know to 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 consider as well is just the fact that the stock market isn't the same stock market that it was before March, right? I mean, it's uh, you know it's 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 truly disconnected from the broader economy, uh, and 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 you know one thing that I I kind of wonder as well is, you know, on a day where Bitcoin and and the and the stock market and, and gold all sell off, is that driven by? I mean, is, is, is the stock market just being increasingly driven by retail investors across the globe? I mean, something that was interesting for me to see, and I don't know if you saw this today, um, I think it was the South Korean Ministry of Finance, or I don't know, whatever the name of the organization was, put out this research into like what South Korean retail investors were trading. And like the biggest things were like Tesla and Apple yeah. and other you know US stocks. And it kind of reminded me of like 2017, where all these South Korean retail traders were just going all in, you know, balls to the wall on Bitcoin. And I wonder if this is just, you know, the stock market is just being increasingly driven in some capacity by retail and crypto is also retail. But I don't know if you have any thoughts there. It's, it's hard to tell. I think when there's a lot of retail involvement in markets, uh, institutions are generally quiet um, <laughs> or they're taking profits. But it's it's very tough when you see some of the figures and to just dive into the the level of printing that we've done across the globe all central banks they've printed almost 4 trillion dollars worth of cash that came out of nowhere and that equates to roughly 6.6% of global gdp and what is more what is the fastest approach to widespread inflation than this kind of printing and this happened since february so i think there's going to be a lot of people really looking a lot closer to cryptocurrencies when all of this is said and done because again you have something that you control completely, like Bitcoin. You can self-custody Bitcoin. You don't need a bank. Um, and I think that is very, very, very interesting for many. And in times of risk, a lot of people immediately gravitate to physical gold but we had a period earlier this year after March when nobody could find physical gold. So the next best thing that you can actually acquire very easily is Bitcoin and you can self-custody it. So not only are you hedging yourself against the failure of the overall financial infrastructure, which includes banks, clearing houses, settlement networks, etc., FX, but you're also being able to self-custody and have it in your hand. And it's a, it's simple. You're not going to run away with, you know, a bunch of ounces of gold and, and store it. it it's heavy. It, you, you can't get in a flight right now. Bitcoin is, the, is 
almost the most natural way for you to hedge right now, in my opinion. Yeah, it's definitely easier to take physical delivery in Bitcoin than it is in gold. So, 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 yeah. I mean, it it sounds like a lot of your discretionary trading is then being driven by macro. Was has that been the case for the last couple of years, or is that mainly just been the case since COVID started? I think, I think a little bit of both. I think at the very beginning we definitely didn't have as many n- news flashes and news alerts as we are having this year. Um, this year has completely blown my mind as to <laughs> everything that's happening I- in the world. But um, ultimately, the discretionary trading that we do is very sound. Um, we put a lot of effort and work into research and fundamentals. And we are definitely doing discretionary trading mostly in periods of high volatility rather than in periods of low volatility and to give you an idea on on the 10% of our strategy that we uh, allocate to discretionary trading on a high volatility period week or month we can trade anywhere between 80 to 100 million per month on a very low volatility period we may not even touch 30 million per month so that gives you an idea of uh, how active we are and when we're active. And so amidst all of this macroeconomic uncertainty in which Bitcoin you know, emerged into a, you know, I guess what can be categorized as, as maybe the beginning of a bull market or what appears to be a bull market, how have you performed and, and how does that compare to the market more broadly? Yeah, we've, we've had a great year so far. Um, since inception, we're up 87%. Year to date, we're up about 41%. And we are, again, very different than most hedge funds. We are not trying to swing for the fences. Um, we strive for singles and doubles every month. And we want consistency so that we can continuously provide uncorrelated absolute returns to our clients. Um, as a comparison, um, a lot of people always pinpoint to March. Um, in March, when a lot of people were hurting, uh, our benchmark, the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index, was down about 31%, and BK Coins Digital Asset Fund was up 4%. So we're, we've been very lucky uh, to continue working really hard and to continue having that consistency, and we think it'll pay off in the long run. It's actually really interesting that you mentioned that Blo- the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index was your benchmark. I'm wondering why you chose that as a benchmark. Yeah, it's... <laughs> There is no right benchmark. Uh, I think a lot of funds out of Europe have their like to use a different benchmark. Some funds here in the U.S. Uh, use the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index. Uh, we generally compare ourselves to to that and to the S and P five hundred. Um, mostly, is there a reason you chose that over Bitcoin itself? Uh, I don't even think that that crossed our mind. <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's certainly interesting. I mean, I think, you know, I, it, I've heard different things. You know, I, I hear some fund managers benchmark against the S&B, but you guys are also market neutral, right? So it's not like you guys are some of the other long, short, you know, discretion, 100% discretionary fund managers that we're bringing on in the space, right? Sure. So I think, I think that certainly makes sense to take more of a, you know, a, a bench. I, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index is, is a number of assets, right? It's not just Bitcoin. Correct. Uh, mainly composed 
uh, of some of the, the bigger market cap and then also some smaller altcoins. And so you alluded to this earlier, um, and we didn't really get a, a chance to dive deep. You know, you mentioned that you think DeFi will will, will bring value to Ethereum, but I, I'm wondering well, what your thoughts are on DeFi more broadly. And and as somebody who's you know whose fund is really not all that discretionary, have there ever been you know has there been an itch at any point where you're like, oh man, I could have made. $10 million if I just bought Wi-Fi or this or that? Like, is, is that ever, I mean, are you, are you like, oh man, I wish we could be yield farming right now. Or are you more just concerned about risk? Oh, uh, you know, I'd love man. to get your thoughts. It is. It's such a good question. I think personally, there's been times where I question myself as to why I did not participate in DeFi. Um, but you know, we're there are also all- <laughs> weeks like this week where DeFi crashes and you're like, oh, this is why. <laughs> exactly. Or every other week when there's uh, some kind of exchange being hacked or, or you know, some, some protocol being hacked or, or malfunctioning. But truth be told, we follow DeFi very, very closely. Um, but as a fiduciary, uh, it's very hard for us to participate and we've avoided deploying capital due to security concerns. Um, we, we think DeFi has its share of genius, but also its share of absurdity. (laughs) Um, we've lacked participation in the space because of the fiduciary standpoint. Um, we consider it extremely risky. Um, but to give you a couple of examples that, that I was thinking about before coming on, if you look at hot dog token, it went from 4k to under $1 in just five minutes. Jam token, which had a market cap of as much as 300 million, so its market cap dropped to zero in 48 hours when the developers realized that there was a bug in their smart contract. Um, Then, of course, Jam 2 version 2 is doing fine, but these are just some examples. Um, We do think that there are some great projects in the space, the likes of Compound Finance, uh, Aviland, uh, YFI, which... It's basically a, a, a robot yield fa- farmer. And then Uniswap, which we thought was genius um, because everybody can list their own tokens on their platform. Uh, so the projects are amazing. I think what Uniswap did in terms of launching at the same time across multiple exchanges and platforms was incredible. And they really you know, put a stamp on the map. Um, if you look at DeFi right now, I think that they... Their dominance is close to 20% Uniswap. So, you know, very impressive what they've been able to do. Yeah, I mean, and we certainly have seen that on our end with social conversations. I mean, one thing that boggled my mind is that within, I think, 24 hours of Uniswap launching their Uni token, it accounted for 17% of total crypto tweets. And just for comparison, Chainlink, which was like the biggest thing, right? And it's like the story of the last two years in crypto. Yep has never accounted for more than 14% of overall crypto tweets in a day. So within within one day of launching, Uniswap accounted for more tweets than Ethereum um, and also just just you know more tweets than than Chainlink has ever accounted for, which I think is 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 wild. I am wondering, are you you know getting, you know, I mean, you know, talking to your LPs, is that ever any are they bringing up DeFi? Like, you know, I, I'm wondering if if you know those that are, you know, kind of maybe allocating to crypto but more sitting on the sidelines as investors, if they're, if it's something that they're they're taking notice of, or is it something that just kind of stuck within our bubble? 
I think for the most part, it's stuck within our bubble. I don't, I think some of the more traditional institutional investors are still wrapping their mind around crypto in general. Uh, and, and, and DeFi with, with this rush of meme tokens, I, I think that's, that's still completely out of their, their I mean, I feel realm. like I don't even know 3% of what's going on in DeFi and I, I, I waste hours on crypto Twitter every single day. I, I, I'm the same way, <laughs> both you and I. Um, one thing that I, I will say when it comes to, to Uniswap, I thought their strategy to to come out was impeccable, and I think one of the reasons being. Do you think it's when, copyable? I think so. I think there will be others that will try to to do something similar. And what was really funny as all of this was taking place, um, we get market commentary from multiple OTC desk on a regular basis, and pretty much every single one of them send us a message right around the same time and everybody was talking about buying uni all at the same day all at the same time so i think what you were picking up from twitter was 100 percent right i mean it was wild i mean we saw like within like two hours it was like binance list then hobby list and okx list and coinbase <laughs> like i've never seen it before it was uh just it, it just in, incredible to uh Incredible to see and 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 to watch. So, are you guys at you know? Are you guys trading on dexes? Is that something that you've you know you're not doing now, but have thought about doing? You know, I'd love to hear that. We are not trading on dexes for our fund. However, um, as of late last year, we started market making on certain exchanges, and we have uh, done some market making in, in different in different dexes. Um, but I don't foresee us. Uh, participating in DEXs for now um, for the fund. Is that is that a security concern? Is that a liquidity concern? A little bit of both. Uh, a little bit of both, for sure. And so how do you go about managing risk in crypto and, and as a fund manager? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, we have the luxury to have a team that all comes from traditional finance. So very much like we look at fundamentals, we've created buckets uh, to manage a risk and we have risk management procedures in place. And the buckets are liquidity risk, counterparty risk, operational risk, and concentration risk. And to give you an example for liquidity risk, it's looking at things on a trade when we can enter and when we can exit a trade and for how long we're going to do that. And do we believe that there's enough and sufficient liquidity on that specific asset for us to do that? Um, when it comes to counterparty risk, as an example, we always like to work with folks that have been in the space for a while that have followed the strict regulatory guidelines and paths. Um, for the most part, some of the OTC desks that we work with either have a bit license or have done, you know, a significant amount of work uh, to go to climb over those regulatory hurdles to provide an amazing service um, to us and to others. Um, and then in terms of the operational risk, obviously, we have daily operational checks that are in place, um, both on the discretionary trading side and then on 
uh, our quantitative side and algorithmic side. And then in terms of concentration risk, which is one of the, the great things that we like doing uh, as a risk mitigation strategy is we're never holding more than 20% of the portfolio's asset in, in one given exchange. And, and that allows us to mitigate risk significantly. And so are you mostly holding funds on exchange just because of the way that you're trading? Are you holding you know, funds in cold storage as well? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I think for every fund, it's a little bit a different story. Um, you know, we spend a significant amount of time building our tech stack and, and working really hard on, on creating these algorithms. And the beauty of crypto, which has changed the game since day one, is trading 24-7. So for the most part, we are holding um, assets at an exchange level. Um, however, th- there's also always uh, a portion of the capital that is sitting with custodians. And another thing that you mentioned as well was liquidity risk. And I'm wondering how you assess liquidity in this space. Are you looking at trading volumes on specific venues? Are you looking at like the quotes that you're able to get from OTC desks? Are you looking at market depth, slippage? How, how do you actually assess liquidity? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of everything above that you just mentioned. And I think for the most part, uh, when you're looking at crypto, we, we really like to look at the order book almost in, in three or four different levels and, and really figuring out what the depth is. And when we, when we are going to make a sizable trade, uh, we always want to give OTC desk a look uh, because it might be preferential to us to be able to place a block trade and not really disturb the market. Um, but, you know, you, you hit the nail right in the head with, with all of the, um, the different kinds of uh, risk mitigation when it comes to liquidity. And your patterns of trading in terms of where you're trading, has that changed? Were you like trading more on exchange now and able to trade, you know, more OTC because of the ability to trade electronically over OTC desk? Is it, is it similar? Are you still not yet trading electronically with OTC? Um, yeah, it's definitely changed a hundred percent. I think, um, two years ago we focused mostly on exchange um, the rise of OTC desk uh, was tremendous, and now you know they're all issuing uh, you know great APIs, and, and they take care of their platform uh, just as much as an exchange would. So we you know we've changed a little bit. I think um, we definitely spend more time talking to OTC desk, um, also getting a, a, a better feel for the market, which is very reminiscent of, of traditional finance where you pick up the phone and you can you can call another trader and, and really figure out what's going on. Um, so I, I think over time, this will continue to change and evolve. But uh, for the time being, I would say 80% of our trading is still done on exchange and 20% uh, we're looking at OTC desk. And how do you think the you know, the, the rise of, of, you know, smart order routing companies and I guess kind of the, the scaffolding around prime brokerages is going to impact the space and and your ability to trade. Oh man. I think there, I, I, I can think of at least four or five, uh, companies that, that I have great relationships with in the space that are, are salivating over, uh, prime brokerage. I think it's something it's definitely something that is going to happen. 
I think when you when you see the likes of Coinbase uh, buying out Tagomi, uh, which already had a great infrastructure, um, these are just natural steps to to be able to offer that service. Um, recently, I think it was earlier this week or last week, uh, we saw Kraken um, achieve or, or, or get a, a banking charter in Wyoming. Um, I think that's another play. When you look at a traditional big bank, they're doing everything. They're not just doing banking for retail. They're doing a little bit of everything. They have an asset management team. They have private equity teams. They have custody. They offer absolutely everything. And I think that that's just going to be the natural progression. Um, And it'll make traditional investors more comfortable with the space because then you will have everything under one roof. Um, and it'll make things a little bit easier to to and more palatable for the investor. And so what particular services do you think are missing from the market today or, or something that you think like a, a prime broker could offer that doesn't really exist today that would, would help you or would help others in the space? I think one of the things that that is, I wouldn't say missing, but... I think the ability to to really segregate accounts, um, like a separately managed account, it, it's there are ways to do it in crypto, and there are service providers and several custodians, some of which we work with, that have been working on something similar to a separately managed account structure, um, but it's not exactly how we see it on traditional markets. So I think once a full-fledged prime brokerage service comes to crypto, that that will get solved pretty quickly. And are you seeing a demand for separately managed accounts? I mean, do you think that that's something that that you guys will see grow uh, among your investors? Yes, yes. I think overall with crypto, you have a lot of diehard Bitcoin enthusiasts but then you have a lot of guys that truly believe in Ethereum. You have other folks that really want to swing for the fences and, and, and trade altcoins only. And I think having a separately managed account allows not just the manager, but also the manager service providers like a fund admin to, to track the trading a lot more seamlessly. And we have noticed multiple clients uh, or potential clients ask us about separately managed accounts. And so what worries you most about crypto? What keeps you up at night, uh, you know, running a fund? And what do you think the biggest risks are for the space? Yeah, my biggest worry with crypto, I think, is is the ability for our country, for the U.S. to to really keep up with the advances in, in crypto due to the slow regulatory clarity. I think that has been a, something that has hindered the growth of crypto particularly in the U.S. Um, I've spent a significant amount of time in Asia and, you know, you, you walk into a Starbucks in Hong Kong and there's crypto ATMs everywhere. People are, are paying with their cab rides with crypto. You have entire cities uh, building different protocols and, and IDs and different credit card solutions that involve blockchain technology. So, I, that, that's my biggest worry. I, I want to make sure that, that our country continues to, to compete at the highest level, if not be leading. And if we continue to being 
that slow when it comes to regulatory clarity, I think it might hinder that. Um, and what so <laughs> what, what do you think the benefits? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sorry. Just to, to interject there. I mean, like, are you, I mean, are you, are you talking about like, you think it would be awesome if we had a crypto ETF? Like, you know, what are some specific examples? Well, I would, I would love to have a crypto ETF. I think that's, that's going to happen. I, there's no doubt in my mind that it will happen. Um, but certain things like, you know, going back to when we started, uh, talking about starting a hedge fund, um, it was very, very hard to find crypto-specific information. Nobody really knew how to tax crypto. Nobody really knew if uh, trading crypto uh, was something that you could or couldn't do. It changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction in the States. Every state has a different law. Um, it's very hard to get certain licenses, like a money services uh, license in different states. Um, so I think... United. I mean, can you even get a broker dealer as a crypto fund, like a crypto exchange? I don't even know if you can. Yeah. And and that's exactly that's what what I would like clarity on, right? I, I would like to to see um, not just Commissioner Pierce uh, be the leading person uh, when it comes to crypto on the regulatory front. I, I would like to see others step up and and really think about what what is happening across the globe and how other countries are really making a concerted effort to advance blockchain technology and crypto. And I want us to be able to be part of that conversation. And I think the U.S. has a huge advantage where we're very entrepreneurial. And the reason why we're still participating heavily in the space, and I recently read uh, an article about DeFi and the number of users um, participating in yield farming, and the U.S. was the second largest uh, number of participants uh, following Europe. So th- in terms of, of innovation, we've always been at the forefront. So I would like for regulation to catch up to our innovation. Yeah, that makes sense. And so what has you most excited about crypto? What has me the most excited about crypto is by far when my friends and family call me regularly now to ask about cryptocurrency because i think it's a testament to the growth of the space and the general awareness and interest of people outside of our crypto sphere um so it it really it's something that i was not uh it's calls that i was not receiving two or three years ago and it's really 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 cool to see it happen and materialize yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think I'm I'm certainly getting some of those as well now. I'd love to know like what kind of questions you're being asked. Like, are people asking about Bitcoin? Because something that's been funny to me is like, uh, I just like randomly last year had like some friends text me about Chainlink, or somebody's like, <laughs> "Hey, I'm thinking about like investing in you know in Filecoin," and I'm just like, "Where are you? Like, how is that the first place you're going to? Like, are, are people asking questions about Bitcoin? Or are they asking about crypto more broadly? I'd love to kind of hear what you're what you're hearing from just your your immediate network. My immediate network typically calls me and only ask, "Should I buy Bitcoin or Ethereum?" That is, I hate that question. I hate question. the "Should I buy?" question. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you got to do your own. Do- well, I mean, what what do you tell them? I'd love to hear what you tell yeah. them. Yeah, they ask that, and then they quickly ask where they can buy it. So it's really, they're just now realizing that they, you know, that they need to 
participate, right? So, I, and I think um, that's actually a super important question that we need to answer in crypto because we find that with 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 everything. Like, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is people just don't know where they can buy crypto. Like, people know you can go log on to Fidelity and you can buy a stock or Robinhood. Like, right. you know, Coinbase has built this giant brand, and, and Binance is massive within the crypto community. But like. If you go to your average everyday person, like Uniswap now does more volume than Coinbase for at least yep. on a few days, you know, did like does my 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 cousins don't know about Uniswap. Like, you know, I wonder how we we communicate that. One of the things that I tell them and and generally I gravitate to telling them go to Coinbase because it's an easy on-ramp and then obviously they also offer custody, they also offer an exchange. Um but at the end of the day, there's so many good places to go for crypto. And I think what needs to change is the way that we offer assistance to them and really kind of hold their hand a little bit, just like we were holding and educating some of the family offices that we first targeted um, to be able to finally convert them into a client. And we have to do that with our friends and family. Um, I mean, I have friends where I've literally started my a, a wallet for them and funded the wallet and told them, hey, I put 20 bucks in there so that they can figure out how to get it. And I, <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a cool way of doing it, but it, it really prompts that prompts them to to take a little bit more interest in the space. And so my last question is, if you could be an advisor for any company in crypto, who would it be? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think that the, I think if I could be an advisor to a company in crypto, it would definitely be one of the major exchanges. So I would say Coinbase, Kraken here in the US, or maybe Binance, Huobi, or OKX in Asia. Um, but to throw a little wrinkle in there, if I really could be an advisor for any related uh, crypto entity, I would definitely look to advise governments about crypto in general and how they can navigate crypto and finance uh, together. I like that. I like that. That's great. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. I've been asking this question to my guests. I'm gonna. I'm gonna steal a little bit from you there and like <laughs> ask if you could be an advisor for any company or crypto related entity. Uh, who would it be? Because I think that's certainly interesting. I mean, you know, I, you know, I'd love. I'd also love to be part of these discussions and just like to hear what an internal CFTC meeting sounds like. And just to even understand, like, are these people talking about the right, like, do they even know what they're talking? And I know a lot of them do, like they are, they are very educated and they're doing their due diligence, but like, it would be interesting to sit in there and, 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 and be a, be, you know, a part of those conversations. Absolutely. I completely agree. And so how could people reach out to you that are interested in learning more, both about yourself and, and BK Coin Capital? Sure. You can follow us uh, on LinkedIn, Medium, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is at BK Coin Capital. And our website is bkcoincapital.com. Uh, feel free to click on the contact page and, and shoot us a message. And uh, you can look me up uh, on LinkedIn as well. And we'll be happy to chat with you and, and hopefully provide you with great service. All right. Thanks, Carlos. Really appreciate you have, having you on uh, and really appreciate all the insight that you share with us today. Thank you, Joshua. I hope that you have a great day and I'm very proud of all your continued success with the tie and looking forward to seeing what you have in store for the future. Thank you.